Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. We're kind of getting to the crux of Peter's message in this book, which is the concept of what do we do when false teachers come into our midst. Now remember, there were false teachers that had infiltrated the church, and Peter is equipping these believers with ways that they can combat what these guys are teaching. And so we get to a really important passage that has to do with prophetic words, as Peter uses them here in this text. And so the reality is, for you in this room, uh, Pastor David, myself, Christy, any small group leader, we are not the final authority on the Word of God. The final authority on the Word of God is the Word of God. So I would expect all of you in this room, and we would encourage you to take what you learn from myself, Pastor David, your small group leaders, teachers and preachers you listen to on TV or on the radio, and examine what they say in light of this book. And that's what Peter's going to be talking about this morning. How do we properly interpret the Word of God based on what other people are telling us about the Word of God? Now, I make some assumptions this morning about all of us in this room. My first assumption would be that everyone in this room finds the Bible to be important to them. If it wasn't an important book, you most likely wouldn't be here this morning. Number two, there are many of you in this room, I wish all of you, but definitely many of you in this room, that believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. That is, it is set apart from any other document in the history of the entire world because it is literally breathed on by God himself. And then the third assumption I make is that I know that there are some of you in this room who don't quite know where you stand when it comes to this book. Maybe you just follow the teachings of Jesus and don't really believe the stories of the Old Testament. Or maybe you believe certain elements of Jesus' teaching, but you choose to exclude others. I'm not naive enough to think that everyone in this room this morning automatically accepts everything in this book at face value. But this morning, as we get into the text, I want you to keep this question in the front of your mind. How important is the authority and the supremacy of God's Word in your life? So keep that question in mind this morning as we read the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This text has much to say to us about the authority and the supremacy of God's Word, but what I need you to know right off the bat is that eyewitness testimony 
is crucial for what we know about the text. This is no different than in a modern trial in a court. One of the most reliable forms of testimony is almost always eyewitness testimony. And Peter, very early on in this passage, appeals to his eyewitness testimony about Jesus Christ. We know that almost all of the claims that the early apostles and the disciples and the early church stake their claims and their lives on were the fact that they walked and talked and touched Jesus. And Peter himself here is telling the people who are being infiltrated by false prophets trying to tell them that the second coming of Christ is not going to happen. Peter says, you can believe that it's going to happen because I walked with him and I talked with him and I touched him. Eyewitness testimony is crucial to our understanding of what Peter and the other disciples are talking about throughout the New Testament. Now the reality is that these false teachers were coming along and they were trying to teach the people here that the second coming of Christ is just something made up by the apostles. It's never actually going to happen. You don't need to worry about it. It's just a myth. And so Peter says here, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we taught you about Jesus. You see, the term myth here that we find throughout the New Testament is always used in a negative connotation. When Paul uses it, when Peter uses it, always a negative frame of mind. And it's interesting here that the eyewitness account that Peter is talking about here is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would think that if I were going to try to teach, the first instant that I would go to would be the resurrection of Christ. But Peter, very specific here, uses the transfiguration of Christ as his example to use with the church here. Why the transfiguration and not the resurrection of Christ? We know that Peter, James, John, Jesus go up to the mountain. They meet Moses and Elijah there. And Jesus is transfigured before them in all of his glory and all of his majesty. And so when Peter uses this example, this is the only time that Peter has ever seen Jesus fully glorified and fully magnified. Not to mention, when Jesus was transfigured on that mountain, and Peter uses it in this passage, it is a prophetic glimpse to the second coming of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying here is, I have seen Jesus fully glorified, fully magnified, but one day, when he returns again, everybody will see Jesus fully glorified and fully magnified. So this is why Peter here uses the transfiguration instead of the resurrection of Christ because he wants to use the specific example to his audience to help them realize that the second coming of Jesus Christ is in fact going to happen. Why is it going to happen? Well, one reason it's going to happen is because I walked with Jesus. You trusted me. I was an eyewitness. You can trust that the second coming of Christ will in fact happen. The entire New Testament, as I said a few weeks ago, is almost entirely based on the fact that each and every book can be traced back to an apostle. So eyewitness testimony is one of the key ways that your New Testament was formed. Either they walked themselves with Jesus or they were one step removed from somebody who walked closely with Jesus. Eyewitness testimony is really, really important to the early church, to the disciples, and to you and I. 
And as we continue to read this morning, what we find is that what the Bible says clearly matters. I did some research this week just trying to find some stats about what modern-day people are saying about Scripture. Now, these are what church people are saying about Scripture. When I use the term church people, I'm not necessarily saying all are believers in Jesus Christ, but people who attend church. One in four say that they read their Bible at least once a week. But one in five churchgoers never read their Bible, period. That's 20%. An even more startling statistic in a lot of ways is that the research also shows that over a 365-day period, based on the research they did, 25% of people don't read a book, period. So we're not just dealing with a literacy of the Bible problem. We're dealing with people that don't read, period. But what the Bible says matters. And if what it says truly matters, the conclusion would be that we need to read what it says. I love the fact that Peter and the early disciples staked their lives on Jesus and the words that he taught. In fact, there's only two conclusions that you can arrive at about the early disciples. Either number one, what they saw Jesus teach, what he did, it was true and legitimate, or they're all insane and lunatics. Those are the only two conclusions you can come to. I love what C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity, and I want to read you this quote. C.S. Lewis is talking about the divinity of Christ here, and what he's saying is, you either believe that Jesus is the Son of God or that he's crazy. I want to read it to you. Here's what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being just a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Every one of us in this room either believes the teachings of Jesus and that he is God, or you believe that he's crazy. In a nutshell, this is where we stand. So when we get to the Word of God and when we say what the, what the Bible believes matters, we have to be aware that Peter is talking about here the prophetic word. What is Peter talking about when he says the prophetic word? There is some debate among scholars exactly what Peter is saying here. Is he saying the prophetic word as in the entire Old Testament? Is he saying the prophetic word and only the parts that refer to Jesus? Is he talking about the entire Bible? We know he can't be talking about the New Testament 
because when Peter is written here, the New Testament canon hasn't been formed. So we're left with either the entire Old Testament or those passages that refer to Jesus in the Old Testament that will be fulfilled later. And most scholars come down on the side of saying that the prophetic word that Peter is talking about here is talking about those passages when Jesus Christ will return and be established and the kingdom of God will reign. After all, we remember Jesus in the temple teaching and he says, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. So everything we know from the Old Testament prophets points to Jesus and made sense when Jesus came on the scene. And Peter says, you can be more fully confirmed about what I'm telling you because of what the prophets say about Jesus. And then Peter says something that struck me. He says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises, the prophetic word has value in your life. The day dawning is a reference to the day when Jesus Christ will return. So what Peter is saying here is, there is never a time in our life when the word of God becomes irrelevant or out of date or not helpful in your life. Peter tells us in his first epistle that the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This book never loses its value. It never loses its significance Until Jesus returns again, this book will reign supreme. I know many of you probably saw this week in the news about a replica Noah's Ark that was created. Anybody see this in the news? Over $100 million was spilt, not spilt, spent on this ark. 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, 51 feet high in Williamstown, Kentucky. This is the construction of it. When the organization that built it was building it, they said, we really hope that this ark is going to prove to people that the stories from the Bible are in fact true. I don't have a problem with the ark. If you want to spend $100 million on it, that's fine. But I want all of us in this room to realize that no ark, no biblical amusement park, no replica exhibit is needed to show that the Word of God reigns supreme. And that this morning, in a time in this week when we have dealt with much tragedy as a nation, what the cities of Baton Rouge and Dallas and Minneapolis need is the hope that we find in Jesus Christ that by the way if you're going to say I really just follow the teachings of Jesus well that's great the teachings of Jesus come from the Bible we can't just segregate parts of scripture and say we'll follow those and not the others the entire meta narrative of scripture from Genesis to Revelations points to Jesus Christ And so we have to be careful. Even though Peter is talking about the prophetic word here, we can expand that a little for us and say that the Old Testament and the New Testament have meaning in our lives. We don't neglect the new to study the old, and we don't neglect the old to study the new. It is one unified document pointing to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. 
What the Bible says matters. But Peter is also teaching us here, beware what people say about the Bible. Now, I know as soon as I say that, many of you are thinking, man, we, our small group literature is written by other people. We read commentaries by other people. We listen to you, Pastor David, and other teachers and preachers. As I said earlier, man is not the final authority on the Word of God. What you study and what you read, other people saying about the Word of God, should always be examined by the Word of God itself. Peter tells his audience here that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Which means if a friend comes up to you and says, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you this, or I had a vision from the Lord and He wants me to do this, if that does not align with what God's Word says, then you can reject that prophecy. You can reject that vision. The Holy Spirit never contradicts God's Word. God's Word never contradicts the Holy Spirit. They are aligned as one. And Peter is reminding his audience, what these false teachers are saying about the second coming of Christ does not align with what the prophets were talking about in the Old Testament. And because it doesn't align with what they're saying, reject it. You know, it's interesting. When we study the interpretation of the Bible... For the most part, up until the time of the Enlightenment, Scripture was pretty much accepted by most all people. Now, there were always segments of people that doubted it, but it was during the time of rationalism and reason that the supernatural and miracles and the divinity of Jesus really began to be under attack. And so biblical scholarship really took a turn more towards a secular study during the time of the Enlightenment. And today, if you go to most public or private universities, most biblical scholars are studying the Bible, not as a spiritual book with significance for your life, but as a literary document, just like they would study Homer. This book stands apart. It is different. And it is, in fact, inspired by God. You know, one of the main ways that secular scholars interpret the Word of God today is what they call reader response. This means that you open up your Bible, you read the text, and you say, this is what I think this text means to me. This is what we call reader response criticism. This is not how believers in Jesus Christ should read the biblical text. It is not what it means to you The author had a specific audience, a specific historical context, and a specific purpose in writing that book. And so we try to get to the crux of that historical purpose and then make application to our life. We don't ever impose our own meaning over the text because we are sinful. So we try to get to the historical context and then make application in our own lives. The biblical text was written to us, but first it was written to a specific audience in a specific context, which means we can't just interpret the scriptures however we want. And what is right for one person might not be right for you. That's not how we study scripture. But I also don't want you to leave this morning thinking, man, this sounds like a lot of work. I'm not sure I want to put in the time and effort to uh, study the Bible this way. The Christian life is hard work. 
Studying God's word is difficult. It's challenging. But the rewards are many. There is no secret knowledge or hidden mystery or degrees that you need to be able to study and access God's Word. You need the Bible, your mind, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone can study the Word of God and know what it means. And lastly this morning, as as we get ready to, to close, I want you to realize that the Bible is not just another document from history. The Bible has what we call inspiration. And I don't mean the inspiration that you and I get when we're inspired to do something and we just go out and do it. I mean God-breathed inspiration. 2 Timothy 2.15, all Scripture is God-breathed and therefore useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and teaching in righteousness. It is inspired by God. Now, there are a number of theories out there regarding how the biblical text was composed. Some adhere to a theory that we call the dictation theory. That is, uh, Peter and John and Matthew, they're just sitting at their desk, and God is giving them word after word to say, and they're literally copying down every word as they hear it from God. But the reality is, the dictation theory completely leaves out the human element of Scripture. We know that the biblical text was a partnership, yes, inspired by God, but also using the creative liberties of human authors. Well, how do we know this to be the case? Well, look at the gospel accounts. Matthew and Luke choose to include a birth narrative. Mark and John don't. Mark and John use relatively easy and simple Greek. Matthew and Luke, it's more complex. Matthew focuses on Jesus as the Messiah. Mark as the suffering servant. John as a divine man who you can believe in because of the signs that he has done. So we know that there is a relationship between the Holy Spirit inspiring these men, but also God letting them use their creative imaginations and experiences and backgrounds to write their gospel accounts. If the Bible is not just another document, then it should move us. You know, we have this idea in America that our faith should be privatized, that it should be safe, and that it should be comfortable. This is the lie that we've we've believed for years. But if you read this book from cover to cover, nowhere will you find faith being privatized, lives living comfortably, or safe. When you read this book and the Holy Spirit illuminates your heart, what you find is that it causes you to live a radically dangerous public life for Jesus Christ. That's what this book does. It is not just another document. So we have to ask ourselves the question this morning, what is the authority in your life? What reigns supreme in your life? 
I did some research this past week on Bible translation. So I went to the Wycliffe uh, Bible Translators website. They're involved in a number of projects doing Bible translation all over the world. Over the last couple months, God has begun to work in my heart about being involved in Bible translation some way, whether it just be writing a check or whatever. I'm still praying through that. But I'm interested in this. And so I pulled some of these statistics that are just from last year, 2015, regarding Bible translation projects that are happening around the world. So 1,300 languages have access to the New Testament and some portion of Scripture in their language. Then more than 550 languages have the complete translated Bible. But we know that there are over 7,000 languages in use today. Those are just the ones that we know of. And there's only 550 of them that have the Bible from cover to cover like we have. Up to 180 million people need Bible translation work to begin in their language. Not continue, to begin. That is, they don't even have John 3.16 in their language. And just under 2,300 languages across 130 countries have active translation and linguistic work being done as we speak But the worst statistic of all of them, 1,800 languages still need a Bible translation project to begin, not be completed. That means they have no access to the Gospel of John, to John 3.16, to Romans 3.23, to Romans 8. No access. Where do you stand with the authority of this book in your life? We can't be lukewarm about this book. We have to be passionate about studying it, meditating on it, memorizing it, proclaiming it here and around the world. It should be so important to us that we would be willing to lay down our lives for what it says. And I don't mean that figuratively. There are people around the world, believers in Jesus Christ, who are standing up and saying, I believe what's in this book, and their heads are getting cut off. This book is our lifeline. Where does it stand and the importance of your life. I would imagine many of us today probably have 10 to 15 books, just Bibles, excuse me, just sitting around our house. And there's over 1,800 languages that don't even have a single verse of Scripture in their language. We can't leave without being moved by the Holy Spirit to do something. Will you pray with me this morning? God, as we study your word, as we memorize it, as we meditate on it, help us to remember that it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can understand it. We can't bring our own interpretations to the text. Lord, I pray that we would have a renewed sense of the importance of studying your word and the value that it has in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, this world needs you, and we know about you through the gospel accounts that we find in the Bible. 
May we proclaim your name. May you teach us and mold us into who you would have us to be as followers of you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ.